The following is a message from Wellsprings Congregation. All right. Show of hands. How many? Thank you. (laughs) You guys are ready today. You're ready for some preaching. How many of you have um, someone in your household who is at the end of their school year right now? That's a lot of us, right? Yeah. So I've been feeling this thing. I don't have any children. I don't have anybody in my house who's in school. I'm out of school myself. But I've been feeling this thing that I'm calling secondhand May. (laughs) Maybe some of you know what that feels like. People running around, people feeling a little bit like chickens with their head cut off. Every weekend, every weeknight, seems like another banquet or concert or event or graduation or barbecue. And so I'm grateful for this holiday weekend. For us to be able to take a little time, hopefully, to rest. And I'm also grateful for this holiday weekend because it represents something bigger than the rest we take, of course. This Memorial Day weekend when we honor the fact that so many people have sacrificed the greatest thing they could sacrifice for us to be able to be with each other this weekend. When I was on my way driving here this morning, I turned on 88.5 and they were playing old war songs. Songs from the 30s, 40s, 50s, songs that people had written, usually kind of like an old guy with a guitar. And one of them was just a song about a boy writing a letter to his mother from abroad before he died in the war. And it was just all about how much he loved and missed his mom. So I hope that as we get to spend time together this weekend, we will look each other in the face and we will honor all the people that are still with us and all the people who can't be anymore, knowing that our lives and our connections to each other are gifts. The end of the school year does bring up a lot of busyness, right? And some of you might remember, maybe in high school, I think sometimes people do this now in 7th or 8th grade too when they get to the end of their middle school years. Do you remember this thing called superlatives? Most likely, right, teacher's pet, class clown, all those kinds of things, usually voted on by your peers. I pulled out my old high school yearbook yesterday thinking, let me see what I was voted on as by my peers. I didn't, I didn't win any of them, apparently. <laughs> apparently I had less of a high profile in high school than I thought I did. did. Does anyone remember, were you voted any superlatives in high school? What were you voted? Teacher's pet. Does anybody else remember? Yeah. Most likely to succeed. So people will want to talk to you after the service one day. (laughs) Did you all know you're in good company? One of the other most famous people who's ever been voted in high school most likely to succeed was this young lady. Ugh, right? Too soon? most likely to succeed in any of those things that our peers voted us on in high school. They might have felt like an early clue into the person we were becoming, but I think we all recognize as adults that we take them with a grain of salt. They are not guarantees for anything. About six years ago, there was actually a study done. There was a group of people that got together and they surveyed a couple thousand people who had all been voted most likely to succeed in high school. And about a third of those people decided that it was a bad thing to have been voted most likely to succeed. About a third of those people answered that survey and said, in fact, it was kind of a curse, they felt. 
there was a certain kind of pressure that it placed on their shoulders. There was a level of self-doubt. One person in the survey said, I carried that label with me like an albatross around my neck into every job interview, into every pitch meeting. I felt like succeeding was part of my identity. And if I didn't succeed, then who was I? Who was I letting down? I wish I had never been voted most likely to succeed. Our book today that I'm preaching about. In the last message on the message series that Reverend Ken and I have been preaching since Easter, a message series called Stories with Soul, where we go through children's literature and children's books to find the wisdom that's there for all of us. This last book is one that Carol Breslin, our Youth Spirit coordinator, introduced me to, and they'll be talking about it today in Youth Spirit as well. It's called Rosie Revere Engineer. Rosie is a little girl in second grade. Right there. And she loves to build things. Rosie digs through the trash after school in the back of the dumpster, in the back of the schoolyard. She goes out during recess. She finds these treasures, these little tools and materials that she can take home and use to build her creations. And she has some successes. We learn in the book that she made a hot dog dispenser. Very useful for this weekend, right? She made some helium pants. I don't quite understand that, but it sounds kind of fun. But her successes came to a halt when she works on this project, actually, that we see right here in the same picture. This project was a hat for her uncle, who is a zookeeper. Follow me here. It's made from parts of a fan and some cheddar cheese spray. And he's supposed to wear it on his head when he goes to work to keep away snakes. Great. Snakes hate cheese, right? So... It makes sense. And what a lovely thought, right? Rosie is creating something. She's thinking about her uncle. She wants to protect him from snakes. Who doesn't want that? And according to the book, the thing actually worked. Spun around and shot cheese out in every direction. But when she brought it to her uncle and showed it to him, he started dying laughing. He laughed so hard because... We know, right? It's a little ridiculous. There were some uh, underlying assumptions that Rosie perhaps had not considered before launching into this project. And through his tears and peals of laughter, her uncle said, Oh, Rosie, I love it. I really, really do. And the book says, But Rosie Revere knew that could not be true. It's funny. Reverend Ken and I didn't actually plan it this way, but last week's book, The Most Magnificent Thing, actually had a little bit of a similar plot. A little girl who was building something and who hits a frustrating setback. And these two characters, though they are dealing with a similar situation, they react in two very different ways. The girl from last week in that book, The Most Magnificent Thing, she doubles down. Right? She pushes harder, and her frustration comes out as aggression and anger. Rosie Revere is in almost the same situation, but she addresses her feelings differently. She doubts herself. She takes that one failure, and because it hurt so much to fail at this gift that she hoped to give, she starts to hide. 
She starts to draw within herself so that she won't have to experience that kind of embarrassment again. The book says, after that day, Rosie kept her dreams to herself. She would still build things, but she would do it in the attic. She would hide her machines under her bed where they wouldn't be seen. Now, many of us in this life at different times have lots of things that we want, things that we hope for, things that we struggle for. And when something doesn't go the way that we hoped, we do often do one or the other of these two things. We turn our anger outward. We make an enemy out of someone or something else, right? They're the reason that things aren't working out. It's all their fault. Or we turn our anger inward. And sometimes we make an enemy out of ourselves. It must be me. I must be the reason that things are not working out. Now, in reality, either one of those might be true, or most likely they're both a little true, right? We know that most things never fall on one person's shoulders entirely. We all have a role to play in the things that happen in our lives. But to find the courage, to have the clarity, to communicate, to do the things that will help us really see what's going on, so that we can forgive ourselves and each other and move forward, that can't happen if we insist on going to an extreme, turning all our anger outward or inward. For whatever reason, inward is the habit that Rosie starts to develop at a young age in this story, saying, it must be me. I'm not good enough to do this. I'll just keep it on the down low, right? I'll just keep it to myself. She starts to hide that part of herself, that kind of shame, that feeling of hiding or denying a part of ourselves, that sense that we won't be worthy of connecting with other people. It's a theme that we have talked about a lot here at Wellsprings. Ken and I have often preached about the author Brene Brown, who's most well-known for her book Daring Greatly, but that builds on the same themes as another book she has, The Gifts of Imperfection. This idea that we are good enough to connect with each other, even in our moments of failure, even in our moments when we are not living up to other people's expectations, when we've disappointed ourselves. And we preach that here so often that I'm sure many of you know that up here, right? We have memes on the internet that say, I am enough, right? We share them. We like them. I like them. I share them. But wow, is it hard to deeply remember that in our hearts, especially in those moments when we have been rejected, in those moments when we know that we have disappointed someone, or let someone down. In those moments when we can't figure it out and we can't make something turn out the right way that we want to. That's when we feel that temptation, I think, because of that discomfort to turn to an extreme, right? I did everything right. I got screwed over. This is all their fault. Or the other. There's something wrong with me. This always happens to me. Why didn't I see this coming? I am hopeless. Sometimes in the emotional intensity of 
something going wrong that's close to our hearts. We might feel both of those extremes, right, in the same hour, back and forth, as we try to make sense. But sometimes, like Rosie, we go to that second extreme of blaming ourselves for a really heartbreaking reason. Sometimes we do that because we just want to stay connected. We think that if we take it on ourselves, we can avoid the confrontation. We can avoid the difficult feelings as they come up in the future. And we can be in that relationship with that person that we care about. Rosie doesn't want to experience that same sense of shame or embarrassment with her uncle or any of the other people she loves again, and so she decides to hide from anyone who might not see her joy or her passion in the way that she does. And so her connections can stay, yes, but it is a shallow kind of connection that we get when we tamp down part of ourselves just to stay in relationship. It actually reminds me of another character from kids' literature who gives up a piece of who she is to stay connected. Remember Ariel and Ursula, the sea witch? That's Ariel signing away. What does she give away? Her voice. Now, first of all, am I the only one who had a feminist light bulb moment as an adult about this plot? (laughs) The price for her to land a husband is to give up her voice? Is Disney not even trying to be subtle here? Come on. Okay. But joking aside, Ariel believed this would work right? To give up her voice in order to connect. To give up a part of herself to get where she wanted to be. It's a sacrifice that does show up in our lives sometimes as a tempting option. There's an interesting story about failure and success in a book by the author Simon Sinek. It was popularized in a TED Talk. It's a little bit shorter that you can look up if you want. It's called Start With Why. And it tells the story, in part, of these two men. The next one that we've probably all heard of. These are the Wright brothers. That's Orville and Wilbur Wright. Now, we've probably all heard of the Wright brothers, but we may not have heard of another man, Samuel Pierpont Langley. Anybody heard of him? A couple people? Yeah. So Samuel Pierpont Langley was actually the favorite to unlock this achievement of human-controlled-powered flight in the early part of the last century. He was the head of the Smithsonian Institution. And Simon Sinek points out that looking for the the person who was going to unlock this mystery and fly for the first time, this was kind of the dot-com boom of the day. This was like the launch of Google. Everybody was watching. There was a lot of energy and time and investment being poured into this work. And Samuel Pierpont Langley had all the advantages that you might expect. He was very well-educated, Harvard-educated. He had funding from the War Department. He had the best people all around him working with him. There were reporters from the New York Times following him around as he did his work. And he worked on this project for 18 years. He had hundreds of thousands of dollars invested in this work. And in 1903, he finally got his prototype aircraft out onto a houseboat on the Potomac. 
that's how he thought this was going to work, and he launched it from a catapult, and it crashed immediately. Eight days later, eight days, after a few failed attempts of their own, these guys took flight in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, for 12 seconds in an aircraft that cost $1,000. This is the kind of story that does make me want to go like, Merca, yeah, right? (laughs) Ingenuity, right? Making it work. There was nobody there. There were no reporters. The news didn't even get out until the next week. It had to get out to the reporters, and then they had to come see that it worked. Later that same day, they got in the air for a full minute. The first time that human beings had flown in an aircraft. Now, Simon Sinek points out two things. For one, he points out that Samuel Pierpont Langley quit his work immediately after the Wright brothers succeeded. There's no way to know if he was mad at the Wright brothers or if he was more mad at himself. But by all accounts, it was his frustration that he wasn't the one to unlock this achievement that overtook him. And he didn't go on to pursue other advancements in flight technology. He didn't go on to work on another aircraft. He just stopped. And Simon Sinek also makes a claim that we can't really know if it's true. I think, though, it is worth considering. He claims that the reason the Wright brothers succeeded is that they were called by the love of the thing itself. They weren't as motivated by external rewards as they were by the pull of a call that was truly connected to their hearts. They didn't have as many of those external pressures or rewards around them. They could do what they wanted. They could do what they loved. He suggests that unlike Samuel Pierpont Langley, those Wright brothers were motivated by what they had to give more than what they had to get from the experience. The thing is, little Rosie in our story eventually comes around to a similar place. Her great aunt, Rose, who she's named for, shows up in town. And Rose starts telling her grandniece that ever since she helped build planes back in the war, she has always wanted to fly one. And little Rosie was kept awake that night, thinking about her great aunt's story, thinking, could I be the one to make her dreams come true? And so she stayed up all night building a cheese copter. Yes, (laughs) cheese also figures prominently in this invention for some reason. And in the morning, she dragged it outside for its first test flight. Rosie launched the copter, and it floated a moment. It whirled around a couple of times. And then it crashed to the ground. And of course, who comes outside of the house to see what's going on? But great Aunt Rose. 
And Rosie starts pulling the pieces of her copter together, going, oh, my gosh, I will never try this again. But Aunt Rose comes right up to Rosie and does this. She pulls her in for a hug. And with tears in her eyes, laughing a laugh of joy, she says, this is the perfect first try, Rosie. Thank you so much. And you know what? Now that this great flop is over, it's time for the next one. Rosie goes, huh, what? Aunt Rose talked with her and helped her see that the only failure Rosie could experience would be not learning from this one. She asked Rosie questions to help her in her next step, right? So it launched and it flew for a minute. Why do you think that worked, Rosie? Think it through. What did you get right? Okay, now where did it go wrong? What happened when it crashed? What can we try next time? What might we learn from that? What ended up calling Rosie out of hiding was love. Was realizing that the gift she had to give her great aunt was sharing her desire to give something to her great aunt. That that was what she would see more than the success or the failure of any one step. It was that commitment to give. And the love that could sustain her then, that knowing where it was coming from on the inside for Rosie, that could sustain her through the failures. That made it worth going through the learning process. And learning processes can be brutal, right? As we know, if you've never heard the acronym AFGO, A-F-G-O, I'm not going to tell you what it means because I didn't give you all a language warning this morning. But Google it, look it up. Learning processes, AFGO, AFGO, they can be brutal. They're not always easy. Because Rosie actually wanted more than just to do a good job. She wanted to give a gift that had meaning to the person that she loved. It turns out that with that as her energy source, there were all kinds of things that she could try and fail at before ever getting too tired to go on. The folks who answered that survey, all the people who'd won most likely to succeed in high school, about a third of them saw it as a curse, stressed them out. But another third or so felt kind of indifferent about it. And the last third said that that label actually ended up inspiring them. And it turns out the ones who were inspired by that label were the same ones who could name how the meaning of success had changed for them over the years. They realized that they could define success from a place inside of themselves, knowing what they had to give and giving according to their intentions. This was the mom in the survey who said, nurturing my kids is my idea of success. This was the young man in the survey who said, being a role model for my community back home someone that they can be proud of. That is my idea of success. They knew what they wanted to give. 
trusting what we have to give. Yes, but maybe even more than that. If we can learn to trust that through successes and through our failures, perhaps we ourselves are the greatest gift to all the people that we love. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of every moment, greater presence that brought each of us here, given to us a life that none of us asked for, none of us had to work for, none of us had to earn. Help us to act in our lives in gratitude for the gift of the time that we have. Help us to remember that life is about growth. That things will continue to change as we develop. That things will be hard. And that some things will be easy. And that through all of it, we can find ways to show up and to stay connected with each other. For these prayers that I've spoken out loud, and even more for the prayers that each of these people carry silently on their hearts today, we say amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.